Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans 14, verses 5 through 9. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should, should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to, the, for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Thanks, Brandon. Good morning, church. Thanks for being here with us today. Um, yeah, it's good to be together uh, here as a gospel family. As we were singing and I was listening to Dustin talk, I'm reminded uh, of the truth that uh, for those of us who are his, in terms of salvation, what he has done is infinitely greater news than what would Jesus do. Because the reality of what would Jesus do is attain a standard which we could never attain. And our pursuit at attaining such, while a noble pursuit, is not a pursuit that will end in us earning our own salvation, but either being filled with a pride <laughs> that is unjust or be succumbing to the reality that that's a standard we could never meet. But the truth of what, the, what Jesus has done, this is good news of grace and grace alone that has been bestowed by Jesus on those who are his. This is the good news of the gospel uh, that we uh, want to dwell on over the next several weeks during this catechism series. This is certainly the good news that the early church held to and that shaped everything that they did. Recently, I've become really... Um, I don't know, incredibly interested in studying the early church and understanding what happened amongst God's people in the absence of technology, the absence of strategy or, or all kinds of you know, marketing campaigns. There's this period of time in the early church, basically kind of after the death of John, we just got done with John's letters, kind of started there, and then all the way up till Constantine. Like when Constantine came on the scene, things changed a little bit. The church and empire formed this new relationship and it feels like things got muddied ever, you know, from then on to some extent. But there's this like 300-year period in history where the church goes from what most scholars estimate maybe 40,000 people at the time of John's letters to millions of people. And it's why Rome eventually had to just succumb to like, we can't ignore this. Something is happening amongst these people. And I've become very interested, and I'll talk about that at the end, but one of the things that kind of coming from that early time is the idea of catechesis. So catechesis is a term that's been used throughout the history of the church across denominations as intentional discipleship, specifically aimed at students, but then throughout church history even expanded beyond there. John Calvin and Martin Luther were kind of known for at the time bringing back this idea of catechesis. So in the early church, when God rescued someone 
And they expressed a desire to be baptized. Their eyes had been opened, we want to be baptized. The church would actually hold off. Unlike today, where we want to report all the numbers we can and it really helps our social media presence, they would actually be very reserved. And the church would go through, the student would go through a process up to three years in length called catechesis, where they would hold off on being baptized. And actually, the people that were not yet baptized into God would leave the service before communion and whatnot. And there was this three years of intentional discipleship and also the church affirming the life of this person, that the the fruit of this person demonstrated what they claimed their heart to believe. And then they would, would, that's why it was such a big deal when a baptism happened, because somebody had been for up to three years going through this process and being affirmed by the church body. And while we don't necessarily do things the exact same way, I believe that intentional discipleship and formation is pivotal in the local church. And the local, the early church knew something of this that I think we've often lost in our quick paced society. Our desire to do this catechism series started with a desire to help mold our kids. Uh, for us, we, we look at youth ministry a little bit differently. Youth ministry is not a separate church. It's not a place to send kids so the adults can do real adult stuff. No, the kids are absolutely a part of our church just as much as everybody else is. And student discipleship is pivotal for the formation of Rooted Church. And so we decided, because of that conviction, we're not just gonna go through catechisms downstairs, but we're gonna do the exact same thing upstairs because we believe that ultimately, real youth ministry, the most formative youth ministry, is what takes place in the home as godly mom and dad are able to talk with and teach their kids the Bible and demonstrate a transformed life. And so we want to not only be equipping our kids with the truths that we're gonna be looking at each week, but we wanna equip you not only as moms and dads, but as members of the church where God has put many children in our care um, and a lot more since quarantine COVID. Man, these quarantine babies, it's out of control. Uh, praise be to God. We want to, we want to equip all of us uh, to be on the same page to that end. We are following, there have been many catechisms throughout history. We're following the New City Catechism, so I'll just let you know this is a convenient app that is also on your phone if you would like to have access um, to the question and the answer that we'll be responding, as well as the text that we'll be looking at each week. You can download that app by the same name. Today, our text for our first catechism comes from Romans 14. We're gonna be starting in verses one through six, and really quickly, before I read one through six, let me tell you a little bit about what's going on here in Romans 14. The church is growing and changing, and you have these people that are totally new to Christians, these Gentile converts, and they're beginning to mix in with people that have this Jewish heritage. So they're Christians, but they're still kind of clinging to the way things have been and bringing some of their opinions into view along with these folks that have been, I mean, saved by faith and faith alone and have no such convictions, and it's causing this tension in the church, and Paul seeks to address it here. It says this in verses one through six. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, 
for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Lord, thank you this morning uh, for the opportunity to come together uh, here with this gospel family. Lord, thank you for the good news of the gospel. We are incapable of completely doing what you, uh, what you would do. Um, but because of Jesus, we have inherited the good news of what you have done. Lord, you have made a way for us in Christ. In Christ, you are our only way, and we acknowledge such fully this morning. Would you help us to see through your word the unity that results in being a people who understand this truth? Holy Spirit, help us to see. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this verse, chapter 14 starts with a unique term. This, those who are weak in faith are who is addressed. Here is what we know about this text. The weak in faith are not those who contend that strict adherence to these secondary issues, such as food laws or which day to Sabbath on, are essential for salvation. What's being debated here is that there are some, because of Jewish custom, they're claiming you'd, we do, eating meat is not what Christians should do. They're, they're firm in this conviction. There are also some mixed ideas on whether or not you have to be real legalistic about the Sabbath, whether it's a specific day or whether there's freedom in there, which Christ spoke on. And so the church is divided about this, and Paul acknowledges that these Christians who are holding to these philosophies, he calls them weak, but he still acknowledges they're Christians. And this is important because Paul addressed similar issues in the church in Corinth, but from a very different perspective. He took a much stronger tone when addressing the church in Corinth. And that's because in Corinth, these Christians, very similar circumstance, but these people that were advocating for these laws, they were not Christians. They actually believed that if you did not hold to this, if you did not do these things, you could not be a Christian. They believed in a Jesus plus obedience to these rules theology, and Paul actually draws the line that they are not Christians, and he takes a stark, just a very hard tone against them. That's not what he's doing here. These are Christians, but they still have some of these same struggles. Instead, Paul is indicating that these weak believers are in fact fellow believers, and that the stronger brothers and sisters, the more mature brothers and sisters, should welcome them into the fellowship. To Paul, the standpoint of the weak on foods and days revealed not that they weren't Christians, but a certain deficiency in their faith. But we need to be clear that these weaker Christians are not promoting a false gospel. They're just still struggling with a form of legalism. And this is important for us where we live in a place where we've been called to minister and we've been called to minister in a place where most non-Christians would identify as Christians, and many who are Christians maybe are still seeking to overcome similar issues as what we see here today. They, these weaker Christians merely believed wrongly that one would be a better Christian if they obeyed their ideas, their philosophy on complicated issues. These were Christians, but in some ways, they had yet to fully understand the good news of the gospel. And thus, they still saw their soapboxes, their personal ideas as more important than they actually were. 
an inadequate understanding of the gospel is the result of an inadequate understanding of the gospel is a weak faith. Colossians tells us that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. The gospel is not merely a door we enter into and then we arrive at salvation and we need it no more. The gospel is the good news that is transforming us to become more and more like Jesus each and every day all over all of our lives. There never becomes a moment or a day or an hour in which we do not need the gospel repeated to our hearts, the good news reminding and refreshing our minds. This never happens, and in this understanding of the gospel and ability to apply it to areas of our life, we see this distinction between weakness and maturity. For the stronger Christian, Paul is insisting that they be patient with the one that is less mature. One of the other interesting things I've seen uh, studying those, those 300 years there at the beginning of the church is they were obsessed with patience. It was amongst the highest of virtues. The first three treaties that were written in the history of the early church were all three, not on missional strategy, not on evangelism methods, but they were written on patience. Paul here is essentially (laughs) setting the tone for that as he's insisting to the stronger Christian, do not see yourself as more important than you are, but be patient, welcome, bear with those who are not where you are yet. God's timing is perfect, and he will sanctify his child and his time through the diverse community of believers. All people, what we need is gospel, safety, and time. If you are an active part of a gospel family, which you should be, you will be changed. If you are all in, you will be changed. If you have no desire to be changed, Paul is essentially saying the Christian community is not for you because to live a life as part of a gospel family is to grow and experience sanctification in the midst of those people you share life with. To the weaker believer, Paul appeals to them not to judge their brothers and sisters. And the basis for this lack of judgment is is listed in verse three. He says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and not let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Paul gives this weaker Christian a shot of gospel vitamins. Here in these texts, we see that what they need, that what would help cure the struggle that they have is a reminder of the truth of the gospel itself, and so Paul gives them these three gospel vitamins, if you will. In verse three, Paul makes the appeal that we should not pass judgment on a brother over secondary issues, for God has welcomed him. The very meaning of being a Christian is justification by faith, and God has justified the brother, the sister, by faith alone. He stands righteous and accepted by God, not on the basis of having it all together, but on the basis of what Christ has done. If you believe that a brother or sister is accepted by our God, then heaven forbid you judge him on a matter of conscience that doesn't contradict scripture. When our Bibles are open and we still disagree to the glory of God, might we rest in our assurance in Jesus and might unity continue? Now this is starkly different than matters where the Bible speaks clearly and a brother or sister is in sin. That's not what Paul's talking about here and we'll get to that in a moment. And in verse four, he says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? 
It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Here he reminds the weaker Christian that he is not the primary judge, that fixing what he deems to be the error of his brother is not ultimately his job. In fact, it falls far outside of his job description. Your brother, he says, will give an account for his life before his own master, and that is not you. We need to be careful not to get so caught up in our brother's imperfections that we begin to lose sight of our own and a self-righteousness begins to develop that is not becoming of Christ. And then in verse four, Paul reminds us of our assurance. In five words, he summarizes the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. This motley crew of ragamuffins who have so many things they don't understand yet and so many things they still see incorrectly and they will not even know they see them incorrectly until glory, like us, because they don't have the whole picture, they will one day be made to stand straight in glory. It says, and he will be upheld, literally to be stood by God, God holding him upright, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul reminds the church that everything that's flawed in the brother who you're so frustrated with, Remember that because of Jesus, not only will that one day not be true for him, but one day it won't be true for you because God alone, because of Jesus, will one day make all of us stand perfectly in glory. You see, these things, these items that the church is bickering over, they seem like small things. We're talking about food and days of the week. But Paul understood all too well that small things quickly turn into big things. What's at stake here is not heresy, but it's division amongst the people of God. In the last year, year and a half, how many churches have we seen split over issues that seem far less meaningful than these? Paul understood full well that a church that's unity is not centered around and built upon the gospel will always be divided by the enemy over things like these. When all is said and done, it is God who will keep us and make us stand at the last day, perfect in him. Leon Morris uh, wrote a commentary on Romans that I enjoyed reading a great deal over the past couple of weeks. And in his commentary on Romans 14, I found this gem of a quote I wanted to share with you. The church was never meant to be a cozy club of like-minded people of one race or social position or intellectual calibre. Christians are not clones, identical in all respects. One of the difficulties the church has always faced is that included in its membership are the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, those from every stratum of society, the old and the young, adults and children, the conservatives and the radicals. People from a great number of nations are Christians and people of every temperament. This is a wonderful thing about the church. And most of us have thrilled at some time at the contemplation of the rich variety in our brothers and sisters in Christ. But this very variety puts strain on us all. How are we to coexist with one church Other groupings in the societies we know are more limited in their membership. This takes away from the richness they might otherwise know, but it makes it easier to get along with one another. They are bound to be tensions in the Christian society. 
<laughs> studying this text this week was encouraging to me and that all the things that have felt unique over the past couple of years are in fact not unique. So as Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. We struggle with the same tensions today we've always struggled with. But the good news of the gospel is as true today as it has always been. In verses 5 and 6, Paul describes how this kind of unity plays out in way of practical daily worship. It says this in verse 5 and 6. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Scripture is more than sufficient in growing the believer in holiness. The close-handed issues of Scripture are clearly proclaimed and repeated, and we must agree on those things, for they are the truth of the gospel revealed by God himself. However, throughout life, we experience challenges and dilemmas, some of which are unique to our cultural moment and our time in history. And for some of these, Scripture does not prescribe a perfect stance clearly laid out as helpful as that would be. There are issues in life where we have to do our best to discern how to stand, where to line up, based on what we know of God and his word. Perhaps this is because in a broken world, some problems lack perfect answers outside of Christ himself. And perhaps our joy will be made all the more complete when we see Jesus arrive because all of a sudden the answers to things we could never figure out, we will see the answer revealed in glory in Christ himself. When these situations arise here on this side of eternity, Paul has given us two encouragements in this text. Number one, in verse one, he tells us, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Welcome him is our first encouragement. I don't know about you guys. I don't know if you have a dysfunctional family like I do, um, but there are realities of a dysfunctional family that tell us something of maybe what the church should be. When you go to grandma's for Thanksgiving dinner, maybe it's your side, maybe it's your in-laws, I don't know, and maybe you don't even relate to this, but surely some of you will. Perhaps there's some crazy at Thanksgiving dinner. You've got Uncle Joe who's telling you about the latest conspiracy theory that he's hung up on while he's also trying to sell you on his new business while we all know he's being supported by grandma. You have your other uncle who we're pretty sure is, you know, a little bit crazy. You've got your aunt who just married that guy who's from California and he's a staunch, he believes politically different than everybody and everybody likes to razz that guy and it's just crazy town in there. Yet, despite the crazy, you never took a stance against going to Thanksgiving dinner because at the end of the day, grandma invited you and this is it's your family. When you come to that place, you might disagree on certain things. There might be things that are hard to talk about, but you still go and you do what grandma says because family transcends those realities. Yet, for some reason, this should be so much more true. That's not a way to say a sentence, but this should be so much more prevalent in the church than it is blood family, yet it's not. 
Yet the things that we can overlook amongst those who are related by blood, we just can't seem to get past amongst those who have been made related through Christ's blood. We should be all the more a picture of unity because grace is surely thicker than blood is. And yet this is often not the case. Paul tells the church, welcome the weaker brother because we need one another. Unity in the midst of diversity testifies to the power of God itself. We want to be the kind of church where folks clearly see that the only reason these people are together is because of Jesus and praise be to God. Paul tells the church to welcome one another and then he says in verse six, and honor the Lord. In verse six, the one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord and vice versa. Whatever you do, your motivation must be the glory of God. When I disagree with a brother in regards to a worldly issue, I want to be able to trust his heart. Now the heart is deceitful and that is true for all of us. And we need to speak truth where truth is needed to be spoke. And perhaps you help a brother grow and that we share life together speaking truth to one another. But at a basic level, I need to believe that his desire is the glory of God even if I believe he is in error. A healthy gospel family is one in which we can disagree knowing full well that when that the one who disagrees, we disagree with is motivated by the same desire as us and that being the glory of Jesus. In this sense, when we are arguing over whether you should eat meat or not, even if one of us is proven to be wrong, we are both right before the Lord because we have honored him through our unity. Sometimes, all we can do is the best we know how based on God's word to the glory of God. Sometimes even those who are mutually dependent on the Holy Spirit arrive at different conclusions on worldly issues. And we have to ask, like, how can that be so? The same spirit that dwells in me dwells in you. How can we arrive at these different conclusions? I would appeal to you today that I believe it is the will of God that he be glorified through making enemies into family, through the glorious power of the gospel. I believe it is the Lord's sovereign plan to leave questions unanswered, that the unity of his church might be strengthened as we are forced to overcome them and cling to the gospel above all else. This is what was, this is what Rome couldn't explain. How are these people together? Like, how are they having such patience with one another? Rome only knew how to keep people in line by force. That was their whole bag. The the military was like nothing the world had ever seen, and that's how you get people together. But the church, there's all kinds of different people, as we see here in this text. And yet, they're together and serving one another and giving their lives for one another and the community because of something very different. Rome had no answer to this. It was mind-boggling, and the church exploded in the midst of it. This kind of posture requires the unity and patience that turned Rome on its head, and it still turns the world on its head today. So how can one come to terms with such a humble reality? On what basis can we be united with those who are so different than us? And this leads us to our catechism text, our primary text for today, verses seven and eight. For none of us lives to himself, 
and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. None of us live to ourselves. And none of us die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. In our lives here and now, all that we do, we do to make much of Jesus. One day we will die. And in death, we will be with Jesus and we'll make much of him. And our legacies will testify to him, to those who remained. And in that way, as this verse says, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. These issues, again, seem so insignificant in terms of the big picture. We're talking about food and days of the week. Yet Paul seems to raise the stakes here at the end of Romans 14. He elevates this to a matter of life and death. And the reason is, Paul, like, I want to be clear. Paul is not encouraging the church that these things don't matter, don't think about them. He tells them what you believe, like you believe it to the glory of God. Hold to, like what you believe is important. You should know what you believe and why. But the purpose, the motivation is honoring the Lord himself. But Paul wants the, the Christian to see that the primary focus of our life is not getting every detail right but it's devoting every detail to the glory of Jesus. That means immensely more than the other because the other is important. Let's know truth. Let's hold the truth. Let's sharpen one another. Let's admit when we're wrong. Let's grow in the areas where we're weak. But we're not gonna do that perfectly this side of eternity. But what we do this side of eternity is offer every detail of our life to Jesus so that even in our error, he receives glory. For the Christian, our life is one of worship, and our desire is to make much of Jesus in all things. Every detail of our life must be attached to this purpose. Nothing is left out, nothing is separate. In life and in death, as we sung today, he is our only hope. As we close this morning, I want to look at verse 9. Verse 9 says this, For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Christ died and rose again from the dead to destroy the power of death. Through his blood, he has made both the living and the dead his own possession. Therefore, the living live to the glory of God. And because of the resurrection, so do now the dead. While we are among the living, we display his excellency by how we steward the creation of God to his glory. It's in this way that we see these practices in the early church make such an incredible impact. At our connection table, we try to provide some resources that we think might be helpful. One of those resources is a book I highly recommend. I read it on, I started reading it on sabbatical almost a year ago, and it's called A Patient Ferment. 
And it's all about this early period in the, in the early church. And the author's whole point, he is an Anabaptist scholar on the early church, is that what you really saw primarily pushed above all else in the early church was this, was this patience. There was just this unworldly patience with one another in a world that knew nothing of patience. You, you, you don't agree with me, you die to the sword. But yet, there was this just divine patience amongst the people of God. All their early writings were about patience. And in the midst of that, there was this slow fermentation. All right, you know, we, we are Baptists, so I don't have to give the beer analogy, so let's say kombucha. Like kombucha is, is fermented. It's this slow process. If you ever watch something brewing, like kombucha, that's from my visual standpoint, you, uh, sometimes it looks like nothing's happening. There's just this kind of slow bubbling, but underneath all kinds of things are happening. Like this very thing that you seek to come, the thing that you're hoping will arrive is, is becoming, it's forming. But it's slow and it doesn't look like anything in the moment. In the same way, the church was committed to this slow fermentation. Many Christians, like it was just commonly known that you might not see anything radical in your lifetime. Like your lifetime was committed to slow patient fermentation. And much of what your life was centered around, I mean, there was a great deal of emphasis placed on raising up young people because your greatest legacy might be what happens long after you die through the child that you're called to steward in grace. Like this was just a common understood idea because there was no social media. You weren't going to get a book deal. There was no fame that came for the follower of Jesus. It was all about Jesus's fame. And so things were slow And fermentation was the norm. I believe that more than ever, the church needs a return to these things. That patience today, patience demonstrates something that the world has no idea what to do with. The world is not patient about anything. I mean, you you can't even watch TV without being labeled which side you should be on. These are the good guys, these are the bad guys. But the truth is, Things aren't really as simple as good guys and bad guys this size of eternity. All of us are bad guys sometimes. All of us were born bad guys. Scripture is full of bad guys that God redeemed and used for his purposes. Okay, David, bad guy, manipulated a woman, had her wife murdered, could argue assaulted her. A man after God's own heart. Like God redeemed and restored all of us. Like Jesus is the only one in this world on the white horse wearing the white hat, the rest of us all fall in to the fallen, to the broken. And through the grace of God, this fermentation takes place amongst the community of God's people and we're changed to his glory. And for some of us, that's quicker than others, but it's no less glorious to the Lord. Like the early church, we will one day be no more. Just this morning, coincidentally, you might have seen an older gentleman came in here before the gathering, and he, um, he attended this church in the 50s, this church building. And I, I pulled out my pictures that I've shown you guys, and he showed me like him in children's church, you know? And, uh, and it was so cool to talk about like the rafters that used to be up here and all these things I'd wondered about the building. It was so cool. And he, you know, he shared with me, like most of his friends, most of the people in that picture are no more. They're no more. And yet, in a small way, their faithfulness, what God did in them, is still affecting us today. Like the blood and sweat they poured into building a structure, God is still, God has raised up their grandkids and great-grandkids, you know, like 
to be in this very place to continue what they started. And he'll do this again and again, and by his grace, through slow fermentation and patience, one day, the kids downstairs will be doing the same thing, and will be long gone, and their kids, and their kids after. Like the early church, we will no, no longer be here one day. Certainly, we will dwell in the pleasant presence of the Lord, and we will give him the glory he is due throughout eternity. Yet might we also leave a legacy that glorifies him here for as long as the sun continues to shine on this earth. Through our patient unity, might we leave this world better than we left it? Might the kiddos downstairs who are learning this exact same text right now be evidence of a people who are changed long after we're not even here anymore? Patience and ferment. Lord, might this be so. Would you pray with me to that end? Lord, thank you for your goodness and your graciousness. Lord, thank you for your patience. Your patience is is unfathomable. We read in your scriptures, and it does not take us long to stumble upon what seems like just such utter foolishness. How could this be so? How, how, how could people who, who saw you, you saw your evidence of your faithfulness so clearly make such stupid, stupid decisions over and over again? Lord, you, we not, you, you rescued your people from Pharaoh, and yet they're barely down the road, and they're making a golden calf. Lord, and we, we read of that, and I acknowledge my heart is prone to say, who are they? How could they be so dumb? And yet, Lord, I acknowledge I am prone to the very same thing. We all are. Lord, yet you continue to be so patient with us, so loving. You never cease to call us. You never cease to continue drawing us to yourself. Lord, we thank you. We thank you. Lord, if if you've given us such lavish grace, Lord, we have no excuse to not offer it to the brother or sister whom you have redeemed. Lord, help us in this way. Help us to be gracious. Help us to speak truth and love. Help us to have hard conversations with our Bibles open and love in our hearts. Lord, help us to leave tables where we disagree, but our love for one another and our status as family is not questioned. Lord, I believe that this is something that the world knows not of and that testifies of the kingdom to come. Lord, I pray I I ask you in the name of Jesus that Rooted Church might be known for such things. That we might demonstrate your glory and the eternal kingdom that will be through this kind of patient fermentation. Lord, any any growth uh, our church has experienced is all all you. It's all you being gracious and growing your people. And uh, Lord, sometimes... uh, feels like we don't always feel like we know what we're doing yet you continue to work in people and do what you only you can do what's only explained through you in the hearts of people and we give you all the glory for that and ask you lord that we might be patient as you continue to do your work from decades and decades to come i love you and i ask this in your good name amen at this time uh, we come to the communion table Uh, We participate each week in the sacrament known as communion. 
uh, because we believe that each week the people of God need every reminder they can possibly get on the truth of the gospel. Every, the, the goal of a rooted church gathering is how many times can the gospel be shared? How many times can it be sung, prayed, repeated, demonstrated in any way we possibly can? And communion is one of the great ways to demonstrate the gospel that Jesus himself instructed us to do. When we come to the communion table, we invite believers to come. When we come to the communion table and we take the bread. And the bread, it demonstrates Christ's body broken. We recognize that because of Jesus, our record of lawlessness has been broken. That Jesus and his perfect righteousness has made a way that death is no longer what we deserve only because of his graciousness. His body was broken and when the Lord looks upon us, he no longer sees the brokenness that is us. He no longer sees our failings, our shortcomings, but instead he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And that's because Christ's blood was poured out. And as his body was broken and his blood was poured out, so his righteousness was poured out. And his righteousness is now poured out over us who belong to Jesus so that when the Lord looks upon us, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And it is not merely a mirage, but for the children of God, it is who we have actually become because of Jesus Christ. And so we are invited to the table for multiple reasons. One, it is a weekly testament of the truth of the gospel. We take with our hands and we demonstrate with our hands what we need our hearts and our mind to believe. And that is the good news that God so loved the world, he gave his only son to live a perfect life and to die a brutal death so that there would no longer be condemnation for those who are his, but everlasting joy in Christ. We come to the table that our hearts might be reminded of this truth week in and week out. But we also come to the table because we've been invited to the table that because of the righteousness of Jesus, we, this isn't just served on any you know, tabletop preference. This is a family table, a kitchen table, because we've been invited to come to the table to take part in the family, to be a part of the family of God because of what Jesus has done. We're not merely slaves, you know, that we're not, that the prodigal son would have been, would, it would have been an incredible act of grace if the father would have said, yeah, come, you can work in the field, I'll, I'll give you some food to eat. Like, what an act of forgiveness that would have been. But the father didn't just do that. He didn't just welcome him back. He, gave, he restored him to his rightful place. He made him an heir. He made him a son once again. And in the same way, it would have been an incredible act if God would have just forgiven us and allowed us to serve you know, as in his fields um, and not to be ever with him. But he doesn't just give us that. He doesn't just allow us to be servants. He makes us family because of Jesus. And so we're not merely forgiven, but we're also made family through the blood of Christ. Heirs, sons and daughters to the king. And that's Incredible, those two truths are worthy of our weekly acknowledgement through communion. So if you are a Christian this morning, we invite you to come and partake. If you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ this morning, communion is not for you, but Jesus is for you. So don't come take communion. That would be silly apart from Jesus. But instead, I'd love to sit with you this morning and tell you about who Jesus is and what he's done. So Christian, when you're ready, come and partake.